This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Welcome to Inside COVID-19. I'm Jackie Cameron for Business. In this episode of Inside COVID-19, Biz News founder Annick Hogg speaks to Discovery Health CEO Ryan Noach about the medical scheme administrator's insights on the pandemic's progression. And Annick Hogg speaks to Dr. Lawrence Roop, a health economics expert at Oxford University, to discuss who will get the COVID-19 vaccine first and how to plan its rollout. First, the COVID-19 headlines. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. South Africa is number eight on the list of countries that have been hardest hit by COVID-19. The Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center lists the U.S. at number one, with just under 6.4 million cases and more than 190,000 deaths. India, Brazil, Russia, Peru, Colombia and Mexico are next on the list. As of this week, just under 15,200 people had died of COVID-19 in South Africa. More than 900,000 people worldwide have died of the coronavirus. Bloomberg has reported that China's vaccine frontrunner has said that none of the recipients of its two shots has reported an obvious adverse reaction or infection. It is pressing ahead with testing after AstraZeneca suspended its trial. Bloomberg reports that BioNTech, SE and Pfizer reached a provisional agreement to supply at least 200 million doses of any successful vaccine to the European Union. The BBC reports that Israel's cabinet is to consider whether to impose a nationwide lockdown as the country struggles to halt a steep rise in coronavirus infections. The health ministry reported 3,904 new cases on Wednesday. This is a new daily record. A week of overnight curfews and school closures began on Tuesday in 40 red areas with the highest infection rates, but health officials are reportedly now recommending a month-long lockdown for Israel. Insurance market Lloyds of London has said it expects to pay out up to £5 billion for coronavirus-related claims, Its chief executive, John Neal, said the first half of the year had been exceptionally challenging. But Mr Neal conceded on the BBC's Today programme that £5 billion was not that big a payout considering the scale of the pandemic. As Indonesia's coronavirus caseload surges past 200,000, some officials are finding creative ways to drive home the message that wearing a mask is necessary to prevent new infections. In East Jakarta, the authorities punished several people with time in a coffin. Head of East Jakarta's public order agency is quoted as saying, The coffin is a symbol to remind people not to underestimate the coronavirus. It's our effort to convey the message to the people. The COVID-19 number is high and it causes death. But officials stopped the practice after critics pointed out that onlookers were violating social distancing rules by crowding around to gawk and take photographs. Indonesia is the world's fourth most populous country. Its new cases have been averaging more than 3,000 a day for two weeks, according to a New York Times database. And its death toll of 8,230 is the highest in East Asia. Next, Biz News founder Ali Cog speaks to Discovery CEO Ryan Noach about how the pandemic is progressing in South Africa. Dr. Ryan Noach is with us, the Chief Executive of Discovery Health. And today... 
you put your team together, gave a media update on the pandemic. There was a lot in there, a lot of meat in there, Ryan, uh, starting off with the conclusion that you came to that the official data tells us about 650,000 South Africans have had COVID-19. Your numbers say 13 million have been infected. That's a very large difference. Take us through it. I think this isn't an unusual situation. We see in many countries around the world, in fact, right around the world, that the very high asymptomatic rate and the fact that COVID-19 manifests as a mild disease in the majority of people means that the actually confirmed recorded figures where there's been a positive test are way below the actual you know, infected numbers. Uh, and so the big question is how did we get to this 13 million? Actually, the best way to get to it, in our view, is to work backwards from the deaths. Um, the Medical Research Council of South Africa has published a report updated yesterday demonstrating 42,000 excess natural deaths during the period. Now, these are non-trauma-related deaths, and there's a very high probability, in our view, a 90% probability that uh, these deaths are related to COVID-19. They're completely out of the usual trend of deaths by natural causes. When you look at the graph, you see the spike of COVID deaths at the time that the epidemic peaks. Sorry, the spike of natural deaths at the time that the COVID epidemic speaks, peaks. And so they, you know, 90% is a fair assumption that are related to COVID. So that would mean around 37,000 total COVID deaths, assuming then an infection fatality rate of between 0.3 and 0.4. That means based on the work that was done by the Imperial College and also uh, a group of epidemiologists who published in the Lancet Journal, the likely mortality rate, the real mortality rate from this disease is in the space of 0.3 to 0.4. That correlates with what we've seen. So if that's true, if there are 37,000 deaths in South Africa based on this MRC report, and the infection fatality rate is in the range of 0.3 to 0.4, you can work backwards and extrapolate the number of infected individuals and works out to about 13 million adult South Africans. Now, why that number makes sense is, uh, you know, is it correlates quite closely with the data that emerged from UCT and Cape Town Metro study that was published last week. Uh, the Cape Metro published a study from their antenatal clinics, which is obviously young, healthy, pregnant uh, women coming to, to antenatal clinics and the HIV clinics, where they did antibody testing for the COVID-19 antibody. And they found a 37% seroprevalence rate. So their data leads us to believe that 37% of the population, adult population at those clinics uh, was exposed to COVID-19. Uh, our number of 13 million represents just over a quarter of the South African adult population. And so these two numbers do correlate. And so we think it's a very reliable, a reliable extrapolation. Hey, we're learning so much about this as we go along. The, the data that gets put into the public domain has to, it can't be entirely accurate because of the, the huge uh, number of asymptomatic people, as you've just explained, and as we well know. So that's a, that's a good number, but does it mean that we have herd immunity? Uh, and, and what is herd immunity? What does it mean? 
The epidemiologists tell us that to achieve genuine herd immunity, you need about a 60% exposure or immunity level in a population. Uh, I think what's interesting is that the, the 13 million infections that we speak about are probably concentrated more than likely in metropolitan areas. And so actually as a percentage of the adult population in those areas, we may be much closer to 50% of the populations infected in those areas. In the Cape Metro study, they did have regional demographics, and they demonstrated that in Kailicha, uh, there was up to 50% positive antibodies in the people at their clinic. So we may be getting close to herd immunity, which, as I say, the epidemiologists claim is at 60%. I worry about that message because I've, I think that it comes with a complacency or a risk of complacency, and we should be quite the opposite. We should remain very alert and aware of the non-pharmaceutical interventions and our behavior and make sure that we take the necessary precautions. Considering the massive economic impact of a lockdown, we really do want to open the economy safely. We want to protect people's lives, but at the same time, get things productive and make sure we don't have a second wave. That's a big, big story. Uh, we saw that the GDP in South Africa halved in the second quarter. South Africa's GDP is about one and a half trillion rands per quarter. So that means we lost 750 billion rand. That, that's the cost of COVID so far. On the other hand, how many lives did we save? It, I suppose it's very difficult to, to say any life is worth X, but you need to start somewhere. And in your, uh, your, your presentation today, you did come up with a, a figure that about 10,000 lives have been saved by lockdown, and indeed that could go to 16,000. How does that work through? You know, we foresee that the mortality linked to these MRC excess deaths reports will probably end up at about 50,000 excess deaths or COVID-related deaths by the end of the year. We think that would have been, by the end of the year, about 16,000 deaths worse. That's about 30% more people would have died um, in the absence of our lockdown, uh, in addition to all the other precautions that we've taken. Uh, you know, so one has to look through different lenses. From a clinical and an epidemiological lens, that's a very good story. We've saved lives. We've protected people. Um, and actually, I think we can be very proud as a country of our response from a clinical and epidemiological perspective. We cannot turn a blind eye to the economic impact. Um, my own view is this economic impact is going to be far-reaching and long-lasting. Uh, it's not necessarily only a fault of a stringent lockdown. It's also just the virus has caused this economic recession in almost every market that we've seen across the world. Um, and we're seeing these uh, poor GDP reports and contracting economies all over the world. Uh, and so it is a huge price to pay. Um, and, you know, only history will tell us uh, in time when we look back uh, what could have be done, been done differently to still achieve great clinical outcomes and potentially, uh, you know, protect the economy. Um, I must say that it, it's getting easier and easier to make judgments as time goes by, but at the time it was impossible uh, to have the foresight to, to look forward and tell. If only we had the app 
that uh, Discovery developed for the Department of Health, it would have, it could have been so different. Uh, if that had been around six months ago, um, surely they, it, it, it would have informed much of the policy decisions on stringent lockdowns or not such stringent and so on. We're very excited about the app, but it is only one component of a multifaceted response. Contact tracing is critical, um, and the quicker we can trace the contacts of somebody exposed to a positive case and be diligent about their isolation and quarantine if necessary, uh, the, the more quickly we'll flatten the spread. I think that the evidence for that is, you know, available out of predominantly out of Hubei province where they took such stringent action around contact tracing that they managed to squash the curve almost immediately. Um, and, you know, in retrospect, having now seen all other countries around the world fight this uh, epidemic, one has to marvel at how China managed the contact tracing and the isolation associated with it. Um, we're very excited about the app. We built it at no cost to the Department of Health um, and have given it to them. It's their app. Uh, they have contributed costs towards it too. The presidency has been involved in supporting the Department of Health on it. It uses the Apple Google API, which Apple and Google created for the whole world's benefit. Um, and, uh, you know, we would encourage as many people as possible to download the COVID Safe SA app. Uh, once you've downloaded it and switched it on, there's nothing more to do. It works in the background of your phone. And as long as your Bluetooth is on, it will warn you if you've come into contact with somebody who is COVID-19 positive. And I had a good chat yesterday with one of our leading lawyers, uh, Emma Sadler, who explained in great detail why she has downloaded the app and why the privacy issues are not there, as you said before, on the Google uh, and Apple development. It was specifically to take that into account. She did say to me that you had a senior counsel from your side who who, who made sure that all the privacy regulations were followed. Why go to such extremes? Uh, you know, privacy in 2020 has to be first and foremost in our minds in everything that we do. Certainly as a financial services company dealing with confidential financial and medical information, we don't do anything without first ensuring that it's safe, secure, and that privacy is protected. Um, and so that's a routine part of our governance. Of course, the Department of Health who owns the app um, uh, you know, they have done all sorts of due diligence and privacy checks on it, too. Um, and uh, you can be assured that your identity is not disclosed. In fact, the technology is so clever, it stores a token on your local device uh, for the phones that you've come into contact with. If, if one of those phones re recognizes a COVID-positive patient, uh, you know, the, the tokens talk to each other and the token shows up on your phone. And after 14 days of no exposure, those tokens are completely destroyed and disappear from your device. So there's actually no identity attached to the tokens at all. And uh, it's a very secure environment. And hopefully will be of use when one goes into the, into the future. Uh, if there were to be a second wave, I, I watched the webinar today and you did make mention of that, even though infections have fallen to just, a, well, they've fallen dramatically in South Africa and a very, very low level now. Why are you worried that there could be a second wave? I guess just watching the rest of the world's patterns and particularly in Europe, we saw in Europe two to three months of low grumbling COVID infection rates and now a sudden resurgence. This is particularly in Spain. 
uh, and France. It looks a bit different to the first wave in those two countries. Uh, the population that's infected now seems to be much younger, uh, and the mortality rate and the morbidity associated with, with it that we're seeing seems to be much less severe. The morbidity and mortality uh, reduction in severity could be because of the younger age. Um, we, we don't know yet. It could also be that there's just a lag and that there hasn't been enough time yet, and actually we still are going to see some severe morbidity and mortality. I really hope for those countries that that's not the case at all. Um, you know, we, we are optimistic. Uh, we're seeing steadily decaying infection rates and a very low rate of infections at the moment. We really would urge everybody to take the right interventions. It is uh, these precautions, our behavior, that's going to determine whether we have a second wave or not. So, you know, wear a mask. It's critical. You may be totally asymptomatic and infected. Be kind and respectful to those around you and just don't go out without a mask um, and, and maintain social distance uh, and be cautious about it. Download the app um, and allow others to benefit from contact tracing. Um, and, you know, I think if we do these things, I'm relatively optimistic that we, we've we had a, a, enough of an exposure in South Africa that we can avoid a, a second wave. Ryan, just to go back uh, to the, the cost of all of this and the lives that were saved, working through that GDP number that evaporated in the second quarter because of lockdown, it cost us about 46 million rand per life that will be saved uh, as a as a result of that but part of the the benefit of the lockdown that you were expect you were discussing today is that we managed to postpone it or postpone the pandemic for long enough to be able to actually know better to handle it just unpack that a little bit for us because if if we hadn't had a lockdown presumably we would have been similar to those countries that were hit first and early on and very hard. Yeah. So, um, you know, just parking the economic aspects for a second, and uh, that's an easy thing to say, but not an easy thing to do. So, you know, give me the journalistic freedom to park the economic issues for a moment. Um, from a clinical and epidemiological perspective, there's no doubt that the lockdown did two massive things. The one is that it delayed our peak and it flattened our curve. And it led in the shape of our outbreak in South Africa to controlled regional outbreaks, uh, as opposed to if we'd, you know, allowed travel to continue, uh, and we'd allowed, you know, people to continue not to social distance, we probably would have had more of a simultaneous outbreak across the country. Um, and so we had these regional outbreaks that were relatively controlled and later than expected. Um, and so, the healthcare system could improve its infrastructure. The two big areas where that happened was clearly in the case of PPE. There was just insufficient PPE in the country, in every country in the world, to deal with this pandemic. What South Africa could do was bring in PPE and the Solidarity Fund and Business SA and the Department of Health worked together brilliantly to supply enough PPE to be able to, you know, to treat COVID-19 to the healthcare professionals. Um, and then in addition to add other infrastructure, field hospitals, to get standard operating procedures and protocols right, to sort out logistics and ergonomics in the medical facilities, uh, you know, to ensure that we, our healthcare system was ready. This stood us in very good stead. But the other thing that we did by buying this time, 
And I think it was an unintended consequence, but in the end it was deeply fortuitous and without doubt saved lives, is that because we were later than the rest of the world and we bought this extra time, we were able to learn lessons from the evidence emerging around the world around how best to treat the disease. Things that we could do that no other country, certainly New York and Italy, didn't have the luxury of being able to do. Um, early oxygen saturation monitoring um, and early detection of this phenomenon of silent hypoxia or the low oxygen levels in the blood. The use of corticosteroids, cortisone and corticosteroids in, in the treatment of the severe illness, which dramatically changes mortality. Uh, you know, 30 to 40 percent reductions in death as a result of the introduction of cortisone. Uh, the change in thresholds for ventilation, ventilating COVID pneumonia is much later than we would ventilate a typical pneumonia. And using high flow nasal oxygen or positioning, putting people on their stomach to recruit new parts of their lung uh, long before we start the ventilation. These modalities we didn't know about uh, when New York and Italy had the outbreaks. They were seeing mortality rates of 70 and 80 percent in their ICUs. We had much better ICU outcomes here in South Africa. And kudos to our clinicians, uh, you know, both in the public and private sector in South Africa, who have demonstrated that they're of the best in the world and they delivered outstanding care. And we had excellent outcomes from the COVID-19 experience here. And they were also very much in touch with others around the world, other clinicians in in uh, in Italy, in New York, and so on. Uh, Ryan, just to close off with, how you've you've spoken about globular numbers. Discovery Health is by far the dominant player in the South African market. How do your figures within Discovery Health compare with the national figures? In other words, I'm trying to find out if you can you can use your real life experience. With sometimes people are a little cautious about believing. Uh, the the statistics that are given out nationally. Yeah, actually we saw that the importance about these kind of outbreaks is what the shape of the outbreak curve looks like. And the shape of the Discovery Health member outbreak curve, if you superimpose it on the national curve, they look almost identical. So uh, we think we had a very good microcosm in our environment of what the national experience was, notwithstanding that the socioeconomic status of the members of Discovery Health uh, is different to that of the country and in general is higher uh, than that of the country. It's offset by the fact that the Discovery Health membership has a slightly higher age group, a slightly higher prevalence of people living with chronic diseases. And so there are these differences which our actuaries and uh, clinicians are able to adjust for. The Discovery Health membership represents about 6.5% of all South Africans. Um, and so it's quite interesting to be able to track the outbreak we did about 500,000 tests for our members. Uh, 14% of all Discovery Health members had a test at some point, uh, which is quite interesting. Of those, 2.3% of Discovery Health members tested positive. Uh, and that represents about 10% of the total number of positive cases in the country. So although we represent 6.5% of the country's lives, we represent a 10% of the, uh, the positive reported cases. And this is a story about access to testing. Um, because of the higher socioeconomic status of our membership, it's very likely they had better access to testing. Uh, and so we had more reliable test results, um, you know, more 
people that were tested uh, per capita. Um, so about 18% of all of the positive cases inside the Discovery Health member base required admission to hospital. That correlates very closely with the data that you see out of other parts of the world. In Italy, they reported about 22% admission rates. In New York City, about 25%. And if you adjust for age, uh, you know, this correlates entirely. So, so that made a lot of sense. I think the big difference is in our fatality rate. Uh, the Discovery Health membership experienced a 1.9% case fatality rate. So that's the number of deaths divided by the total number of confirmed infections. Um, that's 1.9% dramatically better, uh, three to six times better than what we see in the other countries who had the top 10 outbreaks in the world. Um, and that is, I think, because of uh, our country's approach to COVID-19, which was, you know, a lockdown, gave the clinicians lots of time, gave the healthcare system time to prepare we see much better outcomes suddenly from July onwards in our healthcare system. Um, once corticosteroids were, were, were available, once remdesivir was being given, once we'd learned how to treat it. And so uh, we have benefited from uh, being later in the cycle. Uh, of course, the economic consequences, Alec, are dire. Uh, we're all concerned about this. We're all watching this very, very closely. Uh, I think there are long-term ramifications of these economic consequences. Uh, it's difficult to say what's right and wrong, and I'm certainly not the right person to venture a guess on that. But uh, we do need to be deeply empathic to, you know, the economic situation of the country. We all need to come together and stimulate this economy, uh, use local products, uh, use our local hospitality services, restaurants and, uh, you know, game lodges and hotels, uh, and really try and get our economy kick-started, while at the same time taking the necessary social distancing precautions. Next, Alec Hogg speaks to Dr. Lawrence Roop, a health economics expert at Oxford University. Inside COVID-19, from News. We've been talking to quite a few people from the University of Oxford recently, and not surprisingly, because there's a flag-waving position that Oxford has taken in many respects. And it's welcome now to Lawrence Roop, who's a senior researcher in health economics at the University of Oxford. Lawrence, you and your colleague Philip Clark wrote a fascinating piece on the conversation, which we republished on Biz News, about the coronavirus vaccine. Now, sitting in South Africa where we are amongst the 10 most hardest-hit countries by COVID-19 in the world. Vaccines are a big story here, particularly whether we're going to get our hands on them. And you you really did a deep dive into all of this, and and we'll unpack it in a moment. But what drew you to this subject in particular? Uh, Well, well, uh, look, thanks a lot for um, for the invitation to talk today, Alec, and I'm glad that you enjoyed our article on the conversation. What what drew us to the topic? Well, I mean, as you said, yes, of course, we, um, you know, being based uh, as health economists in Oxford, we're obviously, you know, in the same uh, uh, in the same environment, although we have different roles to the people that are that are developing the vaccine. So obviously, there is a lot of talk about it in Oxford. But I suppose, really, as um, well as health economists, I suppose our expertise really largely revolves around the allocation of resources. And what I suppose, you know, kind of um, struck us about the vaccine is that that obviously. 
this is, you know, in contrast to most other medicines, firstly, where the whole process typically, you know, takes many more years, really, for a medicine to be approved and so on. But also the, the big difference being that just the massive, massive global demand that there's going to be for this vaccine once, once we've got a, a safe and effective one that, that, that's been shown is that there's going to be a staggering global need for this vaccine, but initially limited doses. So, you know, even though many countries have ordered huge doses, you know, unprecedented doses of a medicine in advance. Nevertheless, at the time that regulators first approve the vaccine for use, most countries will, will not have enough doses to go around all the people that they would ideally like to give the vaccine to. So that really was the, the thing that, that drew us to us. And we, you know, we thought, well, how can we draw on our economic background and our economic principles to think about how this issue should be addressed? And I think what also perhaps concerned us a little bit was that there seemed to be very little talk really about the allocation process. I mean, of course, there's so much talk about all the different candidate vaccines um, in development. Of course, there are many more, not just the one in Oxford that are being developed. But we worried that perhaps not enough was being done, at least in a, in a, in a lot of countries, to think about what they were actually going to do when the day comes that the vaccine's ready to go, but they've got just a limited amount to go around. In South Africa, there's been a fair amount of coverage on the American position of buying up a lot of vaccines and clearly Donald Trump is not very popular on this continent <laughs> and this has made him even less popular. How do you view that where you have these rich countries who clearly have the resources to be able to almost corner the market? I am a, a strong believer in trying to do things equitably in general. I suppose one of my, my big interests in my research, you know, beyond economics of infectious diseases is very much inequality and, uh, you know, what can be done to, to reduce health inequalities. And I suppose what I think about that is two things. I mean, first of all, of course, I think that, you know, I very much support the WHO efforts and the efforts of COVAX to try and to come up with a, you know, a framework where basically the distribution of the vaccine between countries is as far as possible done in a way that meets the global need rather than that, that it's just the countries who can afford it will get all the doses. But I suppose what I would also say is to perhaps, you know, the more high income countries who are able to, to afford more doses and who in some cases, and you've given a prime example uh, talk about some of Donald Trump's views on this. What I would say is that even if we want to take a very selfish viewpoint on it in some countries, really the infectious nature of COVID-19 means it is absolutely in the interest of all countries to ensure that the pandemic is contained globally. And I suppose that would be you know, my message for perhaps the US administration is that it's actually going to be very short-sighted and shooting oneself in the foot to think that you know, we're going to try and keep all the doses for ourselves. From a South African perspective, again, we are pretty close to what's happening at the University of Oxford with your vaccine because there is a clinical trial that's happening yes. in South Africa. You say there's much talk around the university on the progress. We also saw in the past week that AstraZeneca has halted the trials. It seems like it could be a, a bit of bad news coming out of that. Do you have any insight, or at least what people are saying then and what's happening? I don't have any special insight into that. You know, I'm, I'm not sort of close enough to, you know, the vaccine team to have, have close insight into it. So I probably can't say much more than what they've announced on it. But what I, I suppose I would, what I would say would be to echo that. So basically they're called an adverse event, a potential adverse event. So this is a situation where someone who's involved in the trial, who's received the vaccine, has become ill. 
Now, whenever that happens in a trial for any medicine, of course, here we're talking about very large numbers of people that are that are being involved in this trial. What has to happen? Any kind of responsible trial has to look at, you know, if there's some sort of unexplained sickness which happens to someone who is involved in the trial, they have to look very hard and very fast to see whether or not that is related to the medicine that, that, that they've been given. And that's exactly what's happening here it's because, you know, the, the universities number one commitment in a trial will actually be to be the, you know, to the safety of the participants themselves. And if there's, you know, any possibility whatsoever that, that, that it might have been, you know, that this adverse rea- possible adverse reaction was in fact an adverse reaction to the vaccine, then they have to find out straight away what that was and if that's the case. So basically that's why it's been halted. But these sorts of things are extremely common in trials for medicines because whenever you've got numbers of people involved in a trial, then, you know, of course, by chance, a certain number of people are going to become ill uh, for various reasons that are unrelated to the medicine as well. But whenever someone becomes ill, you have to just check, was it related to the medicine or not? And, and that's what's going on at the moment, I understand. So we don't have so to ho- get hopefully, too depressed hopefully. about it. <laughs> well, I think certainly certainly not yet. I mean, <laughs> I think these things are, are you know, very common. And I suppose, you know, we all just have to hope that it's unrelated and that the trial gets resumed as quickly as possible. Well, thanks very much for your insight today, Lauren Droop, Senior Researcher of Health Economics at the University of Oxford. Thank you very much. And that brings to a close the Inside COVID-19 podcast. Until next time.